Um, so today we're going to talk about the cleansing of the temple, which is one of my, it's kind of weird to say this, it's one of my favorite stories, because um, it's one of the more scandalous things that Jesus ever did. But John's account of it is actually the, the longest one in any of the Gospels. He spends the most time talking about this scene. Uh, so I'm going to read it. It's John 2, 12 through 22. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money, the coins of the money changers, and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, "Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade." His disciples remembered that it was written, "Zeal for your house will consume me." So the Jews said to him, "What sign do you show us for doing these things?" Jesus answered them. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Father, send your Holy Spirit. Anoint the, uh, <clears throat> the reading of your word. Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand uh, what, what the scriptures would say to us today. Lord, I pray that you would make this real in our lives, that we would see Jesus clearly, that we would see him as the Christ, the Son of God, that we would believe in his name and that believing we would have eternal life. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so it says the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now the Passover dates back to uh, right at, during the time of the Exodus, right? This was a feast. This was, became one of the primary feasts of the people of Israel. And through the long history of Israel in the Old Testament, um, the Passover became sort of a, a, a fence post for them. Okay? And it reminded them who they were, who God was, what he had done on their behalf. Um, <clears throat> but during certain times in Israel's history, they would stop observing the Passover. And uh, during one of these extended uh, times when they had stopped observing the Passover, um, in Second in Chronicles 29, it talks about how Hezekiah... Uh, cleanses the temple. He goes and he, it says they, they, they bring out all the instruments from, uh, from the inside. They bring them all out. They go wash them all. They go purify everything. And right after that, he reestablishes the Passover. He cleanses the temple and he reestablishes the Passover. So as Jesus is going to Jerusalem to observe the Passover, we need to remember that this was a primary uh, 
primary feast for the Jews. Now, at this particular point, um, I think, and I'm not exactly sure about this, but I think that uh, they had limited. So it used to be all of Israel needed to come to the temple and observe the Passover. And I think by this time, it was limited to a certain radius, right? There were some people who made it every year, people in Jerusalem and, and in the surrounding area. I think it was about a, a day's journey away. Uh, some people made it to Jerusalem, if they were lucky, maybe once in their life. They made this pilgrimage to uh, the place where God dwelt with man. And so the temple, we know, is, the, is where God's dwelling place was. And the Passover was a call to come to the dwelling place of God, uh, to commune with him, to be with him. And so the temple is very much God's house. And the Passover was a feast where people went to God's house to be with him. Um, so... I want to talk about where it says, zeal for your house will consume me. I want to talk about what what is God's house. I want to talk about what is zeal. And then I want to talk about just this whole idea of cleansing the temple. What was actually going on? Why does John include this? Remember, his gospel is written not in a comprehensive way. He makes us sure to know. Uh, but it's written so that we would know who Jesus was in its fullness. And so he includes this right here. And I'll say real briefly that this comes in, uh, in a sequence of stories that John gives us where Jesus appears in certain Jewish settings, Jewish institutions. One is a marriage feast. Then the next one is this cleansing of the temple. He's at the temple. Right after this, he has an a, uh, encounter with a rabbi or a ruler of the Jews named Nicodemus, so a leading man of the Jews. And then after that, he meets the woman at the well at a sacred well. So there's four stories right in sequence here, and this is the second of those four where Jesus is cleansing the temple. And I think the temple is one of the most significant uh, things, you know, Sometimes John's symbolism is a little tough to, to parse out, right? It's so rich, right? When we start talking about the, the theme of water and blood in John. It can, it's like, oh, yeah, there's something there, but it's hard to kind of put your finger on. All right, what exactly is the meaning of this? For me, the temple is, is one of the easier ones to kind of sink my teeth into. And so that's why I want to spend some time here in the temple, uh, because it also gives us a way to um, look back into the Old Testament and remind ourselves of the big picture. All right, so what is, what is God's house? God has always wanted to dwell with his people. All right, all through, uh, all through Scripture. Is she all right? Is she find where she's going? I think so. Oh, is there? Okay, all right. I guess there's another class going on somewhere. So what does God do? He creates, in the beginning, he creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates a place where he can come and dwell with mankind. He creates a garden. All right? Mankind rebels, disobeys, 
And he says, you may no longer be, we, we can no longer have this place. I can't dwell with you. Either you need to go or I'm going to go. And he sends them out. And then the way back to the Garden of Eden is guarded by a cherubim with flaming swords. Okay? In other words, there is now a barrier between God and dwelling with his people because of the impurity and the iniquity and the rebellion of his people. Um, then we go forward into, after the Exodus, God pulls them out of Egypt. He says, come, be my people. I will be your God. You be my people. And he gives them laws about living together. And he gives them a plan for the tabernacle. Here's how you can, here's how you can relate with me. And here's how you can build a place for me to come and be in your midst. Because this is always what he's wanted. He's always wanted to be with his people. And so the tabernacle, this is, this is a great study you could do. The tabernacle has all sorts of Edenic, uh, the Garden of Eden imagery in it. Okay? Uh, it, it, is, it is a type of Eden. Then the tabernacle, we, we fast forward, and then we have the, the temple that David and Solomon, uh, well, David kind of made the preparations, and Solomon actually executed the plan, but it was, his, it, was in, it was his desire, David said, to build a house for the Lord so that he could have a place to come and dwell. And uh, God sort of adjusts his understanding of what the house of God is at that point. But the point is that they build this glorious temple. And everything, everything, is, everything revolves around that. All of, all of, and this happened in, in the camp of the Israelites, too, around the tabernacle. Everything's arranged... Everything's oriented around the place where God comes and meets with man. So we have that all through the Old Testament, and, and we could spend a lot of time talking about that. Um, but the point is this. In John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we talked about that a little bit a couple weeks ago. But what he is saying to, it's a direct allusion to that idea of tabernacle of the glory of God in an earthly location. Okay? Dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. And so when, when Jesus says, as he's cleansing the temple, he says, build this place, tear this place down, and I'll raise it again in three days. And they say, well, it's taken 46 years. And this was Herod's temple, um, sort of a, a later, later, later edition of, of the dwelling place of God. It says it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to do it in three days? And it says he was talking about the temple of his body. So, Jesus, when he became a man, when he dwelt among us, he was the meeting place between God and man. That was where man was to meet with God. And that's one of the big points of John's gospel, that if you see Jesus, you see God. Like, you don't sort of look around Jesus, or Jesus doesn't come take you to show you God. He says, you're looking at him. You're looking at me. All right? And so, uh, 
in John 14, he picks this idea back up and this language uh, of, of dwelling. <clears throat> and in John 14, uh, verse 10, this is where Philip asks him, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Verse 17. I start in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. Uh, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So Jesus himself is the temple of God. But then he says what? He says, there's coming a time, and this is why I have to come, and this is why I have to go away, because I'm going to send my very presence to you. And when I do that, in the same way that the Father dwells in me, and the world touches God through my life, it's going to be the same way with you. If you love me and you keep my commandments, my Father and I are going to come and make our home with you. And so, what is, what is God's house? All through Scripture, it was the Garden of Eden. It was the tabernacle. It's the temple. But what all those were pointing to was, it, it's Jesus himself. And then as an extension, it is the followers of Jesus, those who love him. And also, the church, by extension. It's individuals who turn to Jesus and follow him. And then it's the gathering of those individuals together. That's where God dwells. That's where he is. So he's not, I don't know, he's not up in the sky. You know, where's, where's God? Well, if you love him and you obey him, he's in you. He lives in you. And when you gather with other people with whom that's the case... He's there in your midst. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. We quote this a lot. This is who we are as a church. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So as God, as we love God, as we turn to God uh, through Jesus and we embrace him, and we turn from our old ways and we follow his commandments, 
which boil down to love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. As we do that, God himself is making his dwelling place in our hearts. Jesus with the Father come and make their home with us. And then as that happens, they build those people together into a dwelling place for God by the, by the Spirit. And as a result, the glory of God, and this is what's going to happen, the glory of God will fill the whole earth. That's how he's going to do it. That's what he made possible by the Holy Spirit. And so he's doing it. So that's, that's what God's house is. All right? Now, Jesus says that the disciples remember the scripture that says, zeal for your house will consume me. All right, so I want to talk about zeal a little bit. Um, the classic Old Testament example of zeal, anybody know? Phineas, yeah, Numbers 5. And, and what's happening here is, no, not Numbers 5, Numbers 25. Um, why do I have Numbers 5 on there? Oh, it's because <laughs> this is, uh, so zeal, the, the Old Testament uses the word when a husband gets jealous for the uh, fidelity of his wife. Right, so just, just imagine that. That's one, of the, that's one of the more powerful emotions in human experience, right? When someone starts messing with your wife or when your wife starts to run around on you, I, I can imagine that's one of the stronger human emotions, okay? Jealousy is another word for it. Um, anyway, it talks about the jealousy for, of a husband for his wife uh, in Numbers 5. Also in Song of Solomon 8.6, Hey, I worked in a verse from Song of Solomon. I get extra points for that. That's that one bingo card that never gets checked off. Sermon bingo. Set me as a seal. But when it does get used, it's this scripture, right? (laughs) Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Same word. The zeal that a husband has for his wife, the jealousy, it's as, strong, it's as fierce as the grave. It's flashes, are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Okay? It makes a little more sense why God put a flaming sword in Eden. He was jealous for what he created. He, he had zeal for it. Okay? So Phineas, Numbers 25, and I'm not going to read the whole story, um, but go read it. It's, it's good. Uh, what happens is the, the, uh, the Moabites, Moabites? Yeah. The, the, the Moabites, sort of on the council of Balaam, this uh, guy, the prophetic guy who kind of knew, um, he was a greedy prophet. Um, Israel begins to uh, go astray. And basically they're sending the daughters of Moab to seduce uh, the sons of Israel away from from faithfulness to God. And Phinehas, it says, he was, uh, the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar. So what he does is he goes and he he finds uh, an Israelite who's in bed with a Moabite, and he 
casts a spear through both of them and kills them both on the spot out of zeal for the purity of the people of God. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. God says, do you want to know how I felt as this was going on? Look at Phinehas and you'll see a picture of my jealousy for my people. They're being drugged off into faithlessness, into adultery, into fornication. I am jealous. I can see, and it's not, he's not sort of like pietistically outraged. His people are being destroyed, right? They're killing themselves. They're being drugged to the depths of of sin that they were never meant to experience. And he says, I am jealous. And if you want to know what I feel, look at Phineas. That's what I feel like. I want to throw a spear through anyone who would do this to my people. And any of my people that allow this to be done to them. In Psalm, in Psalm 106, verse 30, it says that this was counted to Phineas as righteousness. He's memorialized. He's the only other person other than Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, that that phrase is used. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Phineas threw a spear <laughs> through the Moabite and, the, and the, the Israelite who were in bed together, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Right? God doesn't use that phrase lightly. God said, yes, he gets it. He understands. You have to be careful not to react to this story with modern sensibilities. Okay? Wow, I would God ever condone that. That's a different question. Okay? It's what's in the text, and we have to take God on his own terms. Um, so th- that's, that's zeal. All right? That's the picture of the Old Testament that... that points to zeal. Okay, in the New Testament, Paul says he was zealous. And what was the result of that zeal? He was persecuting the church. Right? And zeal is not vindictiveness. Zeal is not vengeance. Zeal is a passion for purity. Zeal is a righteous indignation at an injustice that's happened. That's zeal. Okay, so zeal is not petty revenge. Phineas was not just, you know, flying off the cuff in a rage. He had zeal. Paul was not consumed with anger and wrath. He, he was a zealous man. He was zealous for the purity of his people. And so anything that threatened that, he was going after. Right? Just as a husband... Uh, would go after someone who threatened his, his family or his wife. <clears throat> All right. So, uh, this idea of cleansing the temple, this happens uh, several times in the Old Testament. Uh, I, I mentioned Hezekiah. It also happens to an extent when, 
a few kings later, in, when Josiah, they're uh, rebuilding, reinforcing the temple, and they discover the book of the law. And they go, oh my goodness. And they begin to reform the way that they're living because they have discovered, whoa, this is how God wants us to live. We have, <laughs> we have drifted far away from this. Let's realign our lives with the law of God. Um, and I think it's interesting that both Hezekiah and Josiah, they, they rededicate themselves to leading the people into the observance of the Passover. Uh, and so here we are in John. Jesus is at the Passover. He goes to the temple. <clears throat> and so this is so rich. I mean, if you, if you understand the history of God's people, if you understand the story, there will be just alarm after alarm going off here in this story. Oh, whoa, yeah, the temple. Oh, man, Passover. Oh, man, zeal. Here he is. All of these Old Testament things, this is, this is God himself being jealous uh, for his dwelling place. And so what does he do? He goes straight for, he says, first of all, this is the Passover, okay? So this is like, um, I don't know, I used to work at Chick-fil-A, and on UK game days, it was just bonkers. Everyone getting their big nugget platters and going, going to tailgate. All right, this is a high-volume high day in the temple, okay? Especially because you would come and you would make sacrifices at Passover. And I've heard all sorts of estimates about, like, just absurd numbers, about the number of animals that would be sacrificed during a Passover. Uh, and it's just, it's just crazy. You can't even imagine. And so Jesus comes and he says, he, he, he just disrupts it all. The first thing he does is he stop everything. Right? And so these transactions can't keep going. Right? People are coming to, you can't bring an animal to, it's hard to bring an animal to Jerusalem from wherever you're from, so you just pick one up at the temple and sacrifice it, right? It's already there. It's clean. So no one can sacrifice. Uh, the, the whole process comes to a screeching halt. And so many times in the prophets, we don't have, we don't have time to go, to go there, but so many times in the prophet, this is, what, this is what God is saying. He said, just stop. Like, stop having these holidays, Stop with the sacrifices. This isn't what it's about. This is not what I'm looking for. And so Jesus walks straight into the, all of the, the, the hubbub, and he just, boom, and it all stops. Sacrifice, the sacrifice stops. The transactions stop. All the stuff stops. And he says, take all this away. What's that mean? Take all this away. The system, the sacrifices, the animals, the money, all of it. What is he saying as he says, take all of these things away? He's saying, this has, this has never been 
my father's ultimate desire. This is not the vision. (laughs) This is not what all of this was pointing to. You've regressed, right? You have not made progress in understanding who I am. You're so far off. And Jesus says then, he walks into the middle of the temple and he says, stop all of this and in fact, tear it all down. And they go, what what are you talking about? I mean, this is the central hub. This is where God meets with his people. And Jesus says, no, this has never been where God meets with his people. I am where God meets with his people. And you've ignored that fact. So he's not primarily, you know, he's not coming in to cleanse the temple uh, to rail against commercialism. You know, I've, I've heard people talk about, oh, it's because, you know, we shouldn't have Christian bookstores because, you know, Jesus doesn't want the, the exchange of money. There's a much bigger lesson here than that. And he's showing how the temple itself, the temple itself, the central symbol, or one of the central symbols for the people of Israel, was corrupt. Is under judgment. It was no longer doing what it was meant to do. Okay? It was always meant to point to something beyond itself. It was always a concession on God's part. And that's really what he was trying to tell David. Listen, I don't dwell in houses made by human hands. This idea is all through the Old Testament. I know you want to do something really great for me, but this isn't ultimately what this is all about. I want to dwell with my people as they walk in my commands. I want to have a relationship with them. That's where I want to dwell. I don't want to dwell in this building. I don't want these barriers between me and my people. I don't want this curtain between the holies and the holy of holies. I want to make my dwelling place in a heart that is yielded to me and in a heart that desires me. And so this is, God sees the beauty of what he desires with his people. And he sees the ugliness and idolatry that's represented by this whole sacrificial system and this just racket that's going on in the temple. And he says, let's strip it all down. The pilgrimage, making people come out here and all this stuff, the sacrificial system, the physical structure, it all needs to go. And God's not changing his plan. He's clarifying what his plan has always been pointing to. He doesn't say, oh man, we tried the temple and people just didn't do the sacrifices right. They just couldn't get it right. So I got to start over. No. He says, I've always been trying to teach you how to relate to me and you've never really understood the message and so now I've had to come down in the flesh and tabernacle among you so that you can understand what I've I've been talking about all along. And so the question we got to ask ourselves is do we have zeal for the household of God? Do you have zeal for anything? That would be the first question. Zeal, sometimes in my generation, is a little hard to come by. 
there's, there's, there's a lot of apathy, a lot of meh, <laughs> a lot of whatever. So for, are, you, what, are you zealous for anything? But ultimately, I mean, we don't, God wants us to be zealous for his house. And so here's some ways we can think about this, how this applies to us. Do we have zeal for God's house? First of all, in our own heart. Proverbs 4, it says, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it are the issues of life. Hey, your heart is key. Your heart is where God wants to come and make his home. But he can't when it's divided, when it's idolatrous, when it's conflicted, when it's hiding. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about godly repentance. Godly repentance. And he says, you know, I don't, I don't care a lot for this kind of, you know, you feel bad about yourself, and then you just keep on doing what you're doing. But what I am glad about is when you are grieved and it produces in you a zeal, that's the word he uses, which then leads to life. And so in terms of our own hearts, when we, if, if we have truly repented, zeal comes with that package. A zeal to keep our hearts free from impurities. To keep our hearts free of anything that comes in between us and God. Okay? And that, those can be sin. I mean, it's all sin if it comes between us and God. But it can be stuff that we see as sin, dirty, bad. Or it can be what maybe a lot of people think is, is good. Dead religion, you know. If it, if, if it comes between you and God, number one, God's zealous for it. And he puts in you, if you've truly repented, a, also a zeal. To keep your heart pure. Um, so your own heart. Do you have zeal for God's house? Do you, do, you, do you really see yourself as a place where God wants to come and dwell? Do you know that he wants to take up residence in your heart? And do you treat your heart that way? Um, your family and household. God wants to come and dwell in your family. In your marriage, in your relationship with your children, are you zealous for those relationships? Are you zealous to keep them submitted to the Word of God? Um, Number three, so your, your own heart is a dwelling place for God. Your family is a dwelling place for God. The church is, obviously we've read, is the, is the dwelling place of God particularly the relationships within the church. Right? When we are walking, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we will have a zeal for our relationships. Does this relationship, is this relationship somewhere where God can come and dwell? Or is there sort of just posturing between us? 
Is there a little bit of jealousy between us? Is there a little bit of um, animosity between us? A little bit of rolling our eyes that we have to put up with this person between us. God cannot dwell in a relationship where that is happening. Um, do we guard our relationship between the church and the world? Right? This is another, this is what Phineas was doing. Right? We are in a culture, as Isaiah says, we are a people of unclean lips and we dwell amongst people of unclean lips. And that's true for ourselves. But the world around us, we, we are in the crooked and perverse generation. And you better believe things want to come and infiltrate the church. Now, I don't say we're isolationists. We're not, we don't wall ourselves off from the world and walk around with blinders on our eyes. But we do need to be zealous to keep the world, worldly ways, out of the church. And you can see all through the history of the church, when worldly ways begin to instruct the way that the church operates, it begins to divide. It begins to split. It begins to become corrupt. It begins to be governed by money more than the word of God and all these things. So do we zealously guard the holiness in society of the church? And what is it that we're guarding against? You know, in, in all of these areas, in our heart, in our families, in our relationships, and in our, our relationship with the world, what, what is it that we guard against? And, and I would list these. Number one, impurity. Right? A mix of uh, a little bit of God and something else. Idolatry. Not that we would go out and get a silver statue of the goddess Artemis and put it up on our living room and bow down to it, but Paul clarifies for us that really what's at the heart of idolatry is covetousness. It's being ruled by our desires. It's making God in our image rather than allowing God to make us in his image. So are you, are you ruled and defined by your desires? Or are you ruled and defined by who God has created you to be? Uh, hypocrisy. And this is, you know, our hearts can become hypocritical. It's it, very easily. We can deceive ourselves. Hebrews says, see that you exhort one another continually so that you aren't hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have to remain tender and open to exhortation because sin will not stop <laughs> going after us, ever. Right? And when we become passive, when we allow it into our hearts, it will just sit there and, and it will just harden. Uh, and finally, false religion. Right? I mean, this is what Jesus walked into. He said, look at this racket. Look at all this stuff. It's just transactional, you know, a transactional attempt at piety. Right? And we might not be going to Jerusalem and laying down our money to get a dove to go and sacrifice it, but 
do we have a transactional relationship with God? Oh, God, I, you know, I did these three good things, and the least you could do is maybe throw me one good thing for those three good things. <laughs> or, um, well, if you do this for me, I'll, I'll really be good next time. You know, this... I mean, God, God despises that. That's not, that's not what he created us for. So, these are some questions. These are some challenging questions, right? And this challenges all of us. This really challenges me. Um, you know, this is the hardest sermon to preach because when, when God cleanses the temple, he goes right for the, you know, he goes right for those who are in the, in the pulpits and that's how he does it. Um, but the last thing I want to say is that so the, this zeal comes from honestly being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's, not, it's not a strident effort that we kind of, all right, let's go, let's be passionate for holiness and purity. Um, my challenge is to ask yourself, are you zealous for the household of God? in your own heart, in your, in your household, in your relationships, and in, in, the, in your, the way that you treat the world. Um, because that will indicate the extent to which the Spirit of God really dwells in you. Okay? So I'm not saying, all right, if you're not zealous, you need to go get zealous. I'm saying, if you don't have zeal for the household of God you might want to spend more time in the presence of God and ask him to fill you with his thoughts and his ways. Um, that's where it comes from. And that's what he gave to his apostles. That's what he was coming to demonstrate. He says, I'm zealous for this because the Father's in me and he's doing his work through me. This is his zeal. And that's what we want. And we don't want to just go and throw spears through people that we shouldn't go throw spears through. God looked at Phineas and it pleased him because he says, he gets me. He is in alignment with my jealousy. Not, hey, look how cool this guy was. You know, look at this big macho man throwing spears. That's what I want everybody to do. He says, no, he understands my heart for my people. And that's what he wants to fill us with. So my prayer is that God would, would fill us with his spirit to the extent to which we would be zealous and he would see our zeal not as human emotion, but as an expression of his desire for his people, his passion for his bride. And that's the zeal that God uh, wants to fill us with. And that's the zeal that, that cleanses the temple. Okay? We always have to be careful reading this because it's like we want to go, all right, let's go. Jean jumpers for everyone. Buns. <laughs> No, we need to spend time with God and allow his zeal uh, to come through us. All right? Let's pray. Father, we do desire um, to have zeal for your household. Uh, First of all, Jesus, I thank you that you were jealous for us, that 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 jealousy... 
that that zeal for our lives, that passion for us, um, drove you to the cross. And you did it for the joy that was set before you. And Lord, you pursued us and you sent people into our lives to, to proclaim the gospel to us. You gave us uh, people who were zealous. You placed them in our lives. And you pursued us in your jealousy over us. And God, as we, uh, as we let this scripture examine our hearts, I pray that, that you would send your Holy Spirit, that we would not be filled with uh, any sort of guilt or, or indignation of the flesh. Uh, but that we would see ourselves for who we are, Lord, that you would reveal any, any hypocrisy in us. Lord Jesus, living to the perception of men. Uh, Lord, just a few verses later, it says that you didn't entrust, entrust yourself to anyone because you knew all people. You knew what was in mankind. Lord, we know that we can deceive ourselves. We know that we can... Um, manage others' perceptions of us. But God, I pray that you break all that down and you give us a, a fierce zeal for the purity of your household. That you'd help us to feel what you feel for your bride. And that that would uh, transform us and refine us, God. Thank you that you came and you did allow yourself uh, to be broken. Uh, to be torn down, and you did rebuild it in three days. And it's an indestructible life, and in the temple of God is now open, and the temple of God is now unconstrained uh, by location. Uh, and we thank you for that. Lord, make us more and more in an image and a representation here on earth of that heavenly temple and of the blood of, uh, of Jesus the Lamb who's at your right side. Uh, Lord, go with us. Thank you for this time, and uh, seal your word in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. In your home, do some thinking over this, and in your home groups, um, hold up, open up and share where, this, where God might be placing his, his hands on something in your, in your life. Uh, follow up within your home groups. I think there would be some good conversations here. Um, when you ask God to examine you, he does it. <laughs> and... Uh, so let's, <laughs> let's be open before God and honest with each other and uh, allow him to cleanse us as his temple. Amen? All right.